With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 145, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And it is Play Expo weekend. Oh, I'm loving it. Yes, Blackpool is amazing. You know, there's so many cool things there. Like, I, I have not told anybody on the podcast this, but I'm a Star Trek geek and they actually have Star Trek The Exhibition, which is like a full recreation of the bridge and everything. So I'm going to go and check that before going to Play Expo. Is that why you're going a bit early? Yeah, yeah, day <laughs> early just to get my uh, Star Trek in. See, I've never been a big Star Trek fan, but I think only because my mum is a massive Trekkie. And when I was a kid, I was like, oh, you're watching this again. I just want to watch Ghostbusters or something. So yeah. that kind of put me off Star Trek, I think. No, I've even got my own <laughs> little badge and everything. It's going to be so geeky. And the pointy ears, I can see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it is Play Expo weekend. I know we do often do get a lot of listeners who maybe discover us because of all the panels that we do ex- at Play Expo. So if you're a new listener to the show, welcome on board. Um, you've got 144 episodes to catch you up on. Yeah, and uh, most of them are interview. I'd say probably about 140 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so we always cover the news in the first half, and then in the second half we get a guest on. And what a guest we have today. is fantastic. Well, I imagine there will be a lot of people listening who like Sega, because I mean, at Play Expo this weekend, if you're coming along to Blackpool, we are going to have a celebration of... Weirdly, one of Sega's least selling consoles, but also probably the most beloved of all the systems. Oh, yes, the Dreamcast. And I absolutely love that system. It it was really cool and it was late on in Sega's life, but uh, I think it was a great last breath. Yeah, well, that was the Dreamcast we're talking about, which um, celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. It was 20 years ago that it came out in Japan. And this weekend in Blackpool, we're going to be joined by. Probably the most famous YouTuber who covers Dreamcast, and that is Adam Korolek. We're actually flying in from America to join us on a couple of panels this weekend. Um, and also we're going to have loads of others. Jeff Minter. Oh, I'm really excited about this. Going to have a big YouTubers panel as well. Uh, traders are going to be there, big pinball area. Of course, this weekend is Halloween weekend as well. So I imagine there'll be uh, quite a bit of cosplay there. Oh, God. <laughs> Blackpool's <laughs> going to be crazy, isn't it? Like Halloween, stag do's, geeks. <laughs> Ravi's got his sexy catty costume ready to go. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. So if you're coming along to uh, Play Expo over the weekend in Blackpool, we will see you there. If you need to get last-minute tickets, head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, talking about Sega, what a guest we've got this week on the podcast. Al Nilsson. Now, Al was Sega of America's head of marketing. He was essentially the guy who did all those classic promotions for the Mega Drive. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what was it? Sonic Tuesday and uh, uh, Sega and all of that stuff. (laughs) Legendary system. And that was when Sega were at their peak, wasn't it? It was the the Tude era, wasn't it? Attitude. And Sega were the kings of Attitude at the time. And Al was a guy behind a lot of that. So we're going to get some fascinating stories about the inner workings of Sega back in the early 90s. And if you've read Console Wars as well, I mean, you'll kind of get to hear a lot of the stories you may have read in there kind of come to life through Al. And before that, I mean, he's got an interesting history. It wasn't just Sega that he worked at. He worked with Mattel for in television as well. 
Yeah, and uh, Tom Kalinske and guys like that, you know, because there's a big crossover between the uh, toys and the consoles kind of world. Yeah, a lot of the same guys worked on both. So it's really interesting. Al Nilsson, if you're a Sega fanboy, you've got to check out this week's interview. It's going to be so interesting. He's going to be our special guest on the way in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we love you guys. We appreciate you listening to this podcast every week because we know it, it takes a lot of time up actually, you know, listening to a podcast week in, week out. But the amount of nice tweets and Facebook messages and iTunes reviews that we get of people going, I listen to every single show. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And we get a lot of people saying, I've just started listening and now I'm going through the whole back catalogue. So I think we've had people come up to us and go, I've been listening to you for six weeks now every day. <laughs> Yeah, you must be sick to death of our voices after that. We do actually get a lot of that coming in. I, I saw one recently who said, I found your podcast a month ago. I've now caught up with every single episode in four weeks. And now the wait between each episode is excruciating, he said. So that is some commitment. And look, you know, we love doing this podcast. It'll be three years that we've been doing this in January. Wow. In two months, though. That is just crazy. And the only reason that we can keep doing it is thanks to your support. Now, there are lots of ways you can support the Retro Hour podcast. We say this all the time. If you've got a friend who's into retro gaming, maybe tag them in one of our Facebook posts. That's always appreciated. Yeah, or you could join the Discord server and kind of get involved with the conversation. Yeah, you're in there all day long chatting away. I try and drop in when I can. Uh, maybe follow us on Twitter, give us a couple of retweets, leave a review or a little thumbs up on one of our videos or episodes. That all helps. I mean, regularly we make the top 10 in iTunes, which is brilliant. You know, thanks to you guys. And another way that you can help out the podcast is by helping us with the running of the show as well. Now, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website. If you've got PayPal, you can donate via that. It takes you a couple of seconds. Or cryptocurrencies. Yeah, if you're into any of that, you can do all that on our website too. And really, that just helps us keep doing this podcast every week and helps out with the running of the show, which obviously, as you imagine, doing a show week in, week out, it does have its expenses. And just for making a donation of any amount all of which 100% goes back into the running of the show. You will get a shout in a future episode and find your place in the very prestigious Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Paul Edwards. Gia Tiago. Stu Marshall, StuTube. And Rob Burnett, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. If you'd like to do the same, you can do it right now on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into Al Nilsson, this week's very special guest, we did mention it is Halloween weekend. And I imagine around this time, I don't feel anything like me, I always kind of look in Google at, like, you know, spooky video games to play on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of get into that vibe as well. And I, I, I just have all these memories of getting absolutely scared as a kid playing a, oh God, Dark Seed. Yeah. That was one. And I think just Alien 3 on the Amiga because they had no background music. So Very quiet. Just like walking. <laughs> that was it. And the atmosphere was just nothing. <laughs> well, there was Alone in the Dark for me. I remember playing that quite a lot. And Alone in the Dark 2, which um, is actually set on Halloween, a little girl who's trick-or-treating. That's got a really yeah, good Halloween vibe dark, on that. Yeah. They were great horror games. And uh, Ghouls and Ghosts as well. That's yeah. got a really good scary vibe to it as well. But even the... Um dinosaur in Lara Croft at the beginning <laughs> kind of scared me quite a bit <laughs> you're scared of anything really. yeah I was a worse <laughs> but obviously Castlevania uh, they're kind of games that everyone likes to dig out on Halloween and there is actually a little compilation that has just been released on the Playstation 4 now it's a PS4 exclusive Castlevania Requiem now what it does it's essentially a double pack combining two classic Castlevania games that you can now play on the PlayStation 4 via digital download. And um, one of them is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Obviously came out in 1997, 
one of the best games on the PlayStation back then. Um, I think that is generally whenever you see like a, a list of people's top 10 PS1 games. That's always in there, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, definitely. And then another game that's in there that some people may not have played is Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Which system did that come out for? Well, that came out in 1993, and it was the uh, the prequel to Symphony of the Night. But the thing about it is it was released on the PC Engine in 1993. Ah. And I think, if I remember correctly, it was a Japanese exclusive game at the time. So it's kind of one of those that a lot of people may not have actually played originally when it came out. It did have a couple of releases on other systems later on, but I don't think they were any good. So it's really a game that maybe most people haven't played in full quality. That's really cool, though, because I've noticed this with a lot of retro games that kind of were published on maybe obscure systems or stuff like this. Having them released on a much bigger platform brings light to it. And, uh, you know, it means a lot more people can enjoy it. Well, in the West, we got um, Castlevania Dracula X that came out on the snares. Uh, a couple of years later, and that took a lot of the elements from Rondo of Blood, but it's very much changed. So if you want to play this original, authentic version of it, um, apparently it's a bit easier than uh, Dracula X, which was rock hard. Uh, they're going to be releasing this. It's out now, actually, so you can download it from uh, Digital Download. It's released on October 26, and it'll be a PlayStation 4 exclusive as well. So if you want to get that downloaded, I'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, so Alan Sugar... Obviously, a bit of a British entrepreneurial legend. He's on telly now on The Apprentice. And uh, very famous for founding Amstrad. Yeah, and uh, we've heard stuff like recently there was a company that were printing their festival tickets on an Amstrad. And Alan Sugar was so interested that he actually worked out how much he sheet cost. Yeah, how much money they saved by keeping the same computer running. I think he's still got a lot of love for the old Amstrad machines. Well, it turns out, if you've ever watched The Apprentice, he does have an Amstrad-branded phone on his desk. So when he picks up the phone and like the receptionist sends the candidates into the room... Right, is it an emailer? It's no, not, it's not. No, no. <laughs> it's just, no. uh, that he wouldn't cool, get though, that wouldn't out, would he? <laughs> it is just a standard Amstrad office phone. Okay. Now, Alan, he's got nothing to do with Amstrad these days. You know, he sold it all to Sky a couple of yeah, years ago. Yeah. But he's still got love for it as well. But it turns out that apparently the BBC... Got a bit of an arse on with him about having that on his desk. Well, because they probably can't... You know, the BBC is publicly funded. Yeah. So they can't have any any kind of advertising and Alan with his Amstrad phone. It's like... Well, that was exactly it. They essentially said to him, you can't have that there because it's product placement. Now, it turns out, because he's quite a bullshit guy, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Bit of attitude on him. Apparently just came out and completely cut them down. And he said... So whose boardroom is this, yours or Sir Alan's? And what does my company make? Phones. And then he said, do you think in real life I'd have a Philips phone on my desk? So (laughs) essentially, he convinced the BBC in the early days of The the Apprentice when they had this Amstrad phone that, you know, it wouldn't be realistic if he used anything else. He managed to keep it in there. Well, weren't you telling me that one of the episodes is like one of these uh, go find all of these different items and one of them was find an Amstrad CBC? (laughs) It was last year. Yeah, one of their challenges was they had to find some like obscure items by driving all over London. And one of them was, it was kind of, I think it was tracing back Alan's history. Yeah. So they said, go out and find an Amstrad computer. Go find an old barrow <laughs> and some fruit. And then, but yeah. they did actually find it, which I remember watching that and I said to my missus, well, they can't really go on eBay because they've got to find it this afternoon. And it wasn't like a CPC 464. It was one of the more obscure Amstrad machines. Oh, wow. But they managed to find one. It was one of like, the word processor PCWs, I think. Oh, nice. So there you go. Good on you, Sir Alan, standing up for Amstrad. Yeah, get totally. A, get a bit of screen time. That's always good, isn't it? 
So, let's talk Spectrum Next. Yeah, well, that's kind of tied in with Amstrad. He bought them, didn't he? Yeah. Sinclair. <laughs> now, the Spectrum Next is a modern-day version of the Sinclair Spectrum. It is, with lots of extra features in there. And uh, it kind of... It is it is the next step in Spectrum, isn't it? The next. Well, we so did a whole episode about it, didn't we? Continuation, yeah. Well... Um, the next itself is not out at the moment, but Adrian Cummins has been producing some games and they're out at the moment. And there's a mix. So there's a mix of digital download and physical copies. And uh, these games look really cool. He's just talking about a new title, which is going to be coming out, which is called Montana Mike. And now this... that looks very Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, it looks Indiana Jones, maybe a Rick Dangerous style and there's a full collection of these games. And he's saying at the moment it's uh, £10 for the physical release and £5 for the digital. And you're probably wondering, like, oh, there's no Spectrum next. How am I going to be able to play this Well, game? some people have them, don't they? Well, some people have them, yeah. but also there's C-Spect, which is the emulator. Yeah. So you can just run it on your PC at home anyway and then wait for that next to come out. I just think it's great that games are already being produced and there's already a little... Games market, even before the um, Spectrum's arrived. It is awesome, though, uh, that it's kind of got this little industry popping up around it. And I love these games as well. Everything I've seen on the Spectrum Next, it just looks like kind of how you wished 8-bit games looked when you were a kid. Yeah, how you wish they went. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you play a game and you'd be like, oh, this is great, but looking at these games, you think, if it looked like that back then, oh my God, like I probably never would have bought an Amiga or something, you know, back in the day. And there are so many people that are just tinkering with this system and making quality stuff. I mean, I think the quality of homebrew these days is so far beyond what it was back in the 80s. Well, they're saying at the moment there's Dungeonette is available. Yeah. Um, uh, Delta, Star Earth Defense, Montana Mike will be coming, and the Gold Compilation, which will be a free game pack, which will have all of those titles in. See, to me, that is very very nostalgic anyway, because back then you'd often get, like, cassette packs with, like, two or three games bundled in them as well. Yeah, so. yeah. And uh, they're not massively expensive as well. £10 for the um, physical copy. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I, I would just get it anyway, because that's probably going to be a rare collector's item in the future. And if you want, like, kind of games that take advantage of the, the next hardware, then... It's a no-brainer to pick a copy of this up, isn't it? Oh. I just love seeing, like, you know, that classic Sinclair stripe and the logo on a, on a box in 2018. It's just crazy, isn't it? Right, let's talk about vinyl video. Yeah, vinyl video. What, what an idea. So this is absolutely crazy. Ever since I've been a kid, I've been wondering, hmm, floppy disks, they kind of run like this, and would there be a way to store data like on a floppy, or would there be on vinyl, or would there be a way to store some kind of information on it? Uh, other than music. Yeah. And there was an artist who actually created a, a system called Vinyl Video. And this is just mental. I'm not quite sure how it works. You can watch Techmoan's video on it. But it's fully analogue. Right. And it will basically read... It must be like a little preamp or, or some kind of receiver. And then it converts the signal to either be picked up on a regular TV or through HDMI. Wow. <laughs> and you can actually get uh, video footage on this. If you check Techmoan's video, he's uh, he's got some amazingly... It looks grainy and kind of uh, really low res, but the fact that he's getting video from there is just fantastic. Well, what's happened was this was an individual project before, so this was created by an artist. Now this company has actually taken up video vinyl 
and uh, it's probably due to some of the interest uh, from Techmoan. And uh, they're now selling video vinyl converters. No way. Uh, for $175. And uh, pre-recorded editions as well uh, come at around $17 each. And I really want to buy this because this just looks <laughs> mad. So what's the quality like then? I've not watched a video. Oh, the quality's awful. Yeah, but, you know, it, it, it just works. It looks like a black and white, maybe one of those old kind of... Uh, cine real film things right, okay. that you used to watch. Yeah. It is awesome, though. I mean, I, I suppose information you can put on any medium, though. You think video games used to come on cassette tapes and, you know, vinyl is just another audio format, I guess, isn't it? You can store information in audio. Form. I guess, but imagine if they had this years ago, like... Imagine if... Because vinyl's been printed for a very, very long time. Over 100 years or so, isn't it? Yeah, probably longer. Yeah, and, you know, vinyl's fantastic, like, the whole feel of it. And we're actually involved in a bit of a... A vinyl project ourselves, aren't we, Dan? You know, there's been a little um, trailer you may have spotted um, on Facebook. And a few people messaged me going, oh, have you seen you're in this thing? <laughs> this is this little video. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're involved in this movie. Now, this is a new film called The Vinyl Story, Keeping in the Groove. Yeah, and so the story, you may recognise that from uh, the guys who made the Commodore story. So it's by the same group and uh, Wavem Studios and... They've kind of proven Kickstarter success with this film. And this one's going to be more about vinyl, the kind of vinyl revival, and uh, stuff about, like, you know, the Jamaican sound systems, stuff about DJ scene in the kind of 90s when people were using it, and uh, the modern revival where they're trying to make factories at the moment to print more vinyl. And it's just absolutely crazy. I never thought I'd be saying that. Yeah, I mean, I was reading recently that, you know, in, I think it was some, some month last year, vinyl's actually outselling CDs in a lot of markets now. 14.3 million were sold in 2017 in the States. Isn't like the biggest year since like the early 90s yeah. or something? That's crazy, isn't it? What do you think it is? Though? Why, why do you think vinyl's coming back? I, I, like I said in this trailer, I think it's because digital medium, like I, I personally put all my vinyls to side downloaded everything and then lost my collection about four or five times so and i've still got those vinyls that i've had since a kid and they've still got every little nick and scratch in there that i remember from either knocking it with my mates or my mate ruining it or you know it's it's full of memories well i've you know been moving house recently and my garage is full of my vinyl at the moment in crates so i'm gonna get set up it's all like waterproof and everything and dampproof and or silicon bags in there and anything to dry up the air. But I've been going through a few of them recently, like looking through thinking, oh, God, yeah, I remember when... I remember, it's weird, I remember every single place I was when either I bought it or I got given these records. And it was when albums were a thing as well. You know, each album, I, I would listen to an album like probably 40 or 50 times yeah. in my whole time having it and I'd know every lyric and know all the different bits inside the sleeve and it was it was you had a lot more time and it was a bit obsessive kind of final collecting wasn't it i used to go to record shops all around the country now i go to birmingham hard to find records black market records in london i go over to manchester i remember i went to a london uh, a dj shop and i was like you got any garage music he was like it's garage i said garage and we had a big <laughs> argument about how to pronounce it and i was like garage <laughs> I, I think i didn't get any i got kicked out the shop <laughs> but i remember even going to like HMV and they'd have like an in-store DJ playing vinyl. A mate of mine actually did it in Newcastle for a while and their entire bottom floor was just vinyl. It was dedicated to it. So seeing vinyl back on the high street now is crazy. 
I love it though. It's nice as a consumer, as yeah. a DJ, you're probably thinking, oh no, I've got to carry all those bags around and break my back for another few weeks. Oh God, I found a few of my old record bags. It was still full of vinyl, trying to get them out of the van. I was like, God, it, yeah. it is a lot easier turning up with a USB stick these days. But I think you're right. I mean, MP3, it's disposable, isn't it? Totally, yeah. And like stuff like, I've seen Flack and all these uh, lossless music yeah. players, and they're now nice devices where you can store lots of stuff on. It wasn't before. It was all burnt onto CDs and just complete madness. Yeah. All different bit rates as well. I mean, I've got vinyl I've had for like 20 years, but I haven't got an MP3 of them. And, like and that's also another point is that 320 kilobits you can pay on a huge Valve Jamaican sound system. You can't do that with a, a bad quality MP3. But you can with vinyl. But you can with vinyl, yeah. <laughs> so this movie is actually up on Kickstarter at the moment. So if you enjoyed the Commodore Story movie uh, by Wavem Studios, give this a backing. Um, I'm sure you're going to find it really interesting. It's got about a month to go at the moment at yep. the time the show comes out. It's working out the difference because we're recording a bit early. Uh, so if you want to back it, I'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. We're going to be in the film as well. And uh, maybe Ravi will have one of his vinyl video players in there by the time the movie oh, gets yeah. made. <laughs> have you seen the cases as well? They're, they're, they're like um, little vinyls, the CDs are. Oh, how cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've got to get a link to that in the uh, Kickstart Will Be Now show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Al Nilsson, all about the glory days of Sega, this is quite a cool video that a big guy was doing, converting an old TV to RGB. Yeah, this is another amazingly cool channel on YouTube. I think Tecmo and 8-Bit Guy are just fabulous. We've had 8-Bit Guy on before, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is a thing that we didn't have to do that much in Europe because we had the luxury of SCART. Yeah. But this is a, a kind of RGB hack on a, a normal television. So he's, he's coming directly out of the uh, red, green and blue. So this is on no CRT? Yeah. Because in America, you're right, they didn't have SCART over there. So essentially it was either composite or it was RF. Yeah, and, uh, you know, or S-Video maybe. Yeah, but I think a lot of these old TVs, you're looking at this one here, all it had on it was RF. Yeah, God, I, I wouldn't know what it would be like to be in that situation. We, we, we were quite in luxury here with Scott, weren't we? Well, I, I used RF probably on... So my early systems, like my brother had a Mega Drive that we ran off RF, I remember. Um, my Amiga 500, actually, I had that stupid modulator that went on the back of it. Um, I used that for ages, and I think that was actually the first thing that ever broke on my Amiga. I got my A500 Plus for Christmas, and that had broken by about end of December or something. I had to take it back to Dixon's. But, like you said, we didn't have to do this in the UK. But if you are in America and you want a good way of essentially getting a really clear RGB signal from your old systems... This is a great little mod that you can do on a CRT TV. Now, what I would say is watch the video and get someone who's qualified to actually open and work yeah. on CRTs. Yeah, that was it. a scary point where he has to discharge it. Yeah. But um, I think this is cool. I, I don't quite know if it would be worth it. Like, the picture comparisons, they look quite good. But I think you'd probably be better off getting, like, a multi-sync monitor or a, a PVM. Or something yeah. like that. But if you haven't got the luxury of doing that, I think this is a, a cool little hack. And uh, I reckon if a lot more people knew about this in, in America back in the days, they would have had a, a much crisper picture. Well, essentially what he's doing is opening up this, um, hacking in straight to the electron guns. 
yeah. for RGB and then put inputs on the back of the TV, which is cool. Because the thing about it is at the moment, I mean, CRT TVs are becoming harder and harder to find. I was chatting to um, a guy I work with, one of the engineers at work, and he, he's into retro gaming as well. And he said to me the other day, he said we had um, a couple of those Sony PVM monitors, you know, threw them out about 10 years ago. And now I'm thinking, oh, I wish I could. About, about a year and a half ago, I had a CRT panic when I realised the prices were going up, and yeah. I was like, "Damn CRT!" So I managed to <laughs> fill my cupboard with cheap CRTs, uh, all multi-sync monitors. So um, I'm happy with my uh, supply now, and I can fry my eyes out. Because <laughs> we've been talking about it on the podcast, you know, since we started. I mean, I've been an advocate of using CRT again for. God, when did I first bring my CRT monitor back to my flat in Nottingham? It was probably about maybe eight, nine years ago now. Yeah, and I did a video on YouTube probably around 2010, 2011, saying. Um, is CRT better for retro gaming? And at the time, I got slated by so many people. I had a load of thumbs downs. People go, oh, why would you bother doing that? You know, it looks fine on my, uh, my, my 50 inch like plasma until you actually see it again and what it looked like on a CRT. Yeah. Because you look at it and you think, that's the way I remember these games looking. But that's it, like, and multi sync as well. Like, it's amazing. I've, if you watch some of the copper demos, uh, Copper Master on the Amiga, yeah. or even just a Starfield going across on a multi-sync monitor, it looks so clearer than anything. <laughs> and you haven't got the input lag and all that and the ghosting yeah. that you get with uh, more modern TVs. I mean, modern TVs have like game mode, which can help a bit with the old consoles. But, but I've also noticed, you're right, with YouTube, there wasn't many people doing that. And now there's everybody's doing a video of my new PVM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I look on like, you know, retro gaming forums and like, you know, some of them are into like, you know, seven, eight hundred pages that like, shows your CRTs. And... Yeah, yeah. But but also I do remember my dad having beautiful CRTs outside of me like, let's smash them with an hammer. Yeah. You, know? you couldn't give them away 10 <laughs> no. years ago, could you? But that's the thing. I mean, I wonder if it will get to the stage where maybe a new factory opens somewhere in the world and kind of... Does starts... new tubes maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's got to be a stage where supply and demand kind of you know, the, the demand for them outweighs well, the supply. Well, also there. in the art world as well, um, if anybody wants to display an original piece of art, they need to show it in that original format. Yeah. So having uh, CRTs to show VHS work and stuff is also essential. Well, you know, because you think like when HDTVs came around, I got my first HDTV in around 2006 probably. Yeah. Um, and you couldn't wait to get rid of your CRTs and stuff then. But I want one now as well for... Uh, uh, Light guns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking in my new man den, I thought, well, I've got like a little um, 14-inch Philips CRT. I've got a 19-inch kind of Mitsubishi Trinitron display for like my, you know, PC and some of my old Windows 98 PC and my Amiga 4000. I thought actually I could get a little uh, TV stand in the corner, have a nice big 28-inch nice TV for like the snares and the Mega Drive and all that, you know, CRT. We need a CRT factory. We need to yeah. start it, Dan. <laughs> get on Kickstarter. Get yeah. it set up. <laughs> so if you do want to find out more about um, connecting your old consoles to RGB, if you haven't got SCART, if you haven't got that luxury, um, obviously make sure you get someone qualified to do it. Don't go opening your old CRTs without professional advice. We'll link that and everything else that we've talked about in this week's show notes on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, if you are coming to Play Expo in Blackpool this weekend, we will see you there. Don't be too hungover, have a ravi when I turn up on Sunday, please. Uh, if you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> in a bush outside the Norbrick Castle. Uh, uh, top of the tower. <laughs> like Godzilla. King of the castle. <laughs> so we'll see you there this weekend if you are coming down. If you're not, um, we'll be recording all the panels. We'll put them on YouTube. You'll hear Jeff Minter in a future episode of the podcast as well. Got to record Jeff while we're there too. So we'll see you there if you're coming down. If not, we'll check you out next Friday. And right now, let's talk all about Sega with this week's special guest, Al Nilsson.
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event. We've been so excited for this. Let's welcome on our special guest, Sega legend, Al Nilsson. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Now, before we get into um, stories of Sega and Intellivision, we need to talk about them as well. Where did this kind of journey with video games all begin for you? I mean, do you remember when you first encountered them? First video game I ever owned was a dedicated Atari console, which had Pong and Breakout in it and maybe Circus Atari. So that was the first one that I owned. Later got a 2600, even had a, uh, an Atari whatever that music, color music thing was oh, that wow. they had. Uh, after college, I ended up working for JCPenney as a buyer for all of their stores and catalogs, buying video games and home computers, among other things, uh, and took them to be the largest video game retailer in the U.S., selling uh, Atari, Intellivision, ColecoVision, the TI-99-4A computer, the Atari 400 and 800 computers. So that got me really started on my career. So when you initially joined JCPenney, were you interested in just the retail world or you were interested in these kind of new technology and new products? I, I was a new technology guy, so I, I was interested in that and I wanted to become a marketer. But coming right out of school and going into marketing was a big jump. And so I felt that I could go into retailing, then make the job a jump over to marketing, which I did. When you're working at JCPenney, I mean, what kind of games stick in your head from that time that were like big successes for you? Well, our biggest success, we were the largest retailer of Pac-Man. And we did a, um, a special launch of Pac-Man. We had it on sale in our, all of our stores before everybody else. We worked closely with Atari uh, to go and get it out. We were the first video game retailer, which went on the air with a TV commercial, once again, for Pac-Man. If you search YouTube, you can see the ad. Uh, so that was there. You know, Space Invaders was big. Uh, the Intellivision sports games. ColecoVision, just because it was so new. You know, and then, and then, came, then came Adam uh, from Coleco. So it was an interesting thing. Uh, and then also just the, the start of, you know, the home computer business. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Pac-Man there because I know on the Atari 2600, that version of Pac-Man, I mean, Miss Pac-Man was very good, but I know a lot of people kind of um, slate that game online these days, but I think people often forget probably what a big deal it was for people to be able to play Pac-Man at home. They, and that was the thing. It's, it's interesting reading people talking about it now, saying, you know, oh, there were tons of returns. No, there really weren't tons of returns. People wanted to play Pac-Man. And just because it was the flashing version of Pac-Man, they didn't mind because they wanted to go and play Pac-Man. It was just, it, it resonated so well with people of all ages, uh, men, women, boys, girls. It, it really was a game that the whole family could go and get into. That and Space Invaders were the two games which really helped to define um, video gaming. Space Invaders got a lot of games out of the closet that had been put on the side uh, and Pac-Man was another game that had done the same thing. You work with Mattel as well promoting the Intellivision. Absolutely. You know, we, we liked um, <clears throat> the Intellivision and, you know, thought it was a, a, a superior system in terms of graphics, uh, though they had, of course, the much higher price point. But, uh, you know, for the people who could afford it, 
Uh, it really was a, a great experience. It was also the sports games were just so much better, which kind of, you know, replicated what we saw later on the Genesis with, you know, Joe Montana football and, and uh, John Madden football and NHL hockey and all of those games, which really helped to go and bring in a whole new audience. Well, how did you approach um, promoting the Intellivision up against Atari at the time? We went, it, the promotion was we had in-store displays for both of them so people could come and play them and compare and, and show what they wanted. Uh, our advertising on Intellivision was primarily newspaper. The only TV we had done was for Pac-Man. And we relied very much on the manufacturers to go and do the promotions. You know, the um, Intellivision had a very famous George Plimpton ads where they would go in, where he would go and compare, you know, a game on Intellivision and a game on the Atari 2600 uh, and show how much better the graphics were. The other thing that was important for us and what made us a leader or the leader, we were going to go and be the ones who had the games first. And we worked very closely with our distribution department to uh, expedite the games into uh, retail. If you, you know, today you're very, very used to games all coming out on a certain day, which is something we pioneered, you know, with Sonic Tuesday. Yeah. But back then, the games would come out, you know, any time over a one-month period. The stores that were the closest to the warehouse got them first. The stores that were furthest from the warehouse got them last. And so it was hard to go and do advertising based upon something that might not be in stock in the local store. So we worked very closely with the JCPenney Distribution Center to figure out how to bypass our warehouses and get the stuff into the stores within about three days of each other. Did you work with uh, Tom Kalinske at all at Mattel? You know, I, I, I knew Tom, and I had met him once at a uh, consumer electronics show, but uh, did not really work with him until I got to Mattel. Once again, he was president of the toy company. He was, you know, overseeing everything that was being happening in the toy company, but also, you know, keeping a watchful eye on what we were doing on the electronics business because he had been part of the group that had started our electronics business within the toy com- within the Mattel toy company. And so, you know, we just got to know each other back then. But the time when we really worked side by side was at Sega. Well, around that time, I mean, we had the 1983 North American video game crash. I mean, did that really affect things? And um, what was it like going through that? You know, it, it was a very strange time when, you know, this beloved form of entertainment just started uh, imploding. You know, and the major problem was some really, really terrible games coming in from third parties as well as from unofficial third parties, which were, you know, really garbage because games started not selling at all. Games were being discounted so that you could go and um, nobody would want them even at a lower price. You know, uh, on my wall of my office, I have an Atari ET cartridge where it has a price sticker from 49 
with five markdown stickers to a dollar ninety nine. Wow. And I got it I got it for fifty percent off the lowest cost. So it only cost me ninety nine cents. So it just shows how good a shopper I am. <laughs> um, and so it, it was very strange because no retailers wanted the video game business because to them it just meant further losses. You know, the the companies were, you know, also hemorrhaging money. You know, I still remember going to the Consumer Electronics Show in, I guess it was 1985, when there was this company called Nintendo, which said they wanted to get back into the video game business. And it was like, is this too soon? Are the retailers ready to go and do it again? Well, after the crash, Nintendo became a huge success and had a huge share of the market. Um, Did you kind of, could you tell the difference between Nintendo and the other companies? And did this worry a lot of retailers? You know, what, what they did well was, you know, they did a test in New York with Toys R Us to go and see if, uh, and maybe one other city, to see, you know, is there a market there? And rather than try to go, you know, and and go nationwide. And it proved a success, and, you know, Toys R Us expanded to other uh, markets. Uh, Nintendo expanded to other retailers. So that they went and helped to prove that, you know, the market wasn't dead. It just kind of went away for a little bit because of the retailers pulling back and the manufacturers pulling back, you know. So so that was there. And I think that, you know, it was, it was similar for Sega outside of the U.S. Sega established a beachhead before Nintendo did. Well, when did Sega first come onto your radar? Well, I knew Sega from the arcade business and, you know, the great arcade games that they had. So that's when they, they first came onto my radar. From a career standpoint, they first came onto my radar in uh, the fall of 1988 when I got a call from a headhunter who was looking for somebody to head up marketing at Sega with a, a new video game system. Uh, and so I was brought in and they actually videotaped my interview and sent the videotapes to Japan for them to go and look at simultaneously while they were going and looking for somebody to head of marketing, they were also deciding whether or not they wanted to get back into the video game business themselves. The Sega Master System was being sold in the U.S. by Tonka Toys. Sega wasn't, you know, very happy with what Tonka was doing. Uh, They thought they could be more aggressive, but they had not made a decision yet of whether to go and partner with another company to sell and market the product or to control their own destiny. And so part of what I had to do from a job standpoint uh, or a job hiring standpoint was actually prepare a presentation as to why Sega should go and market the um, new system in the U.S. under their own name. So I, I had to go and prove to them that there was a market in order for myself to get a job. Well, joining around that time in the late 80s, I mean, that must have been a very exciting time to join Sega. Did you feel like you were kind of on the crest of something really big? I and, and my colleagues didn't think that, you know, we, we did not envision taking over Nintendo uh, in terms of market share. Um, but what we thought was that we could go and become a strong second player um, and be profitable. 
you know, kind of like the Intellivision to the Atari 2600. And it was also a very small group. There was only uh, about five of us back then, uh, along as well as with some about 15 game counselors who answered calls and gave game hints and tips and a small little repair shop that repaired master systems. So it, it was, you know, it was really a, a startup back then. So it, it, was a, it was an interesting time. But, you know, did we have any thoughts that, you know, we could go and be number one? Because Nintendo just was so, so strong in the U.S. at the time. When did you first see the Genesis then? And uh, what were your kind of thoughts around it? First time I saw the Genesis or the, the Mega Drive was during my first interview when I went in to meet with uh, one of the technical people who had a Genesis there. And my interview was he sat me in front of the unit, turned it on and said, go play. And it was Altered Beast. And I guess I did a good enough job because he went and said, good, thank you very much. And the interview was over. So it was one of the stranger interviews I've ever had in my life. You know, love the graphics, love the sound, you know, very close to the Sega Arcade. And, and you know, I, I definitely could tell, you know, the difference between that and a uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. I mean, you mentioned there about the, the Mega Drive Genesis difference. I mean, the, the naming, um, that was a copyright reason, wasn't it, that it couldn't be called Mega Drive in North America? Right, it was a trademark reason, and uh, someone owned the trademark in the in the category that we would be covering the trademark category that that uh, the system would be under. So we had to go and look at new things, and that was actually the first thing that I did uh, when I joined Sega. They had had six names that they liked. One was Genesis. One was Cyclone. Another one. Um, had a icon of a fox, and I don't remember what its name was, nor the other three. And we had mocked up front covers of the hardware boxes that looked you know, just like the Genesis box, looked just like what the final box was. And I had to go out and do some market research and talk to consumers and find out what they preferred and why they preferred it. Internally, we love Genesis the most, and consumers agreed. They, they, you know, said, yes, I get that, you know, Genesis and the Bible, you know, the new beginning. But they also got the Genesis project from the Star Trek movies. And so once we had a name, we were off and running. I guess there was the band Genesis as well. Yeah, <laughs> Bill Collins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of initially, the uh, main competitor, uh, the 16-bit competitor, was the TurboGrafx-16. Was it seen as much of a threat mm-hmm. at the time? Uh <clears throat> We didn't see it as much a, a, a competitor. They had been, you know, it had been around for a couple of years. They had been shopping it to a lot of different people, in, including companies. Uh, one company that I had been working with, Hasbro. Um, and so I knew about it and, and um, you know, the games that they had. But um, they had a lot of money and we didn't have a lot of money. Nintendo had a huge amount of money. And, you know, one of my favorite memories is we went to, we took some of the largest retailers down to the Pebble Beach Golf Resort to show them what we were planning on doing, introducing Genesis, so let them play some golf. 
and we had five games. Um, I had been on board for about a month and a half. So I had some packaging and a marketing plan. And that was about it and went through it. And one retailer, uh, major retailer goes and says, I like what you're doing, but you know, Nintendo, uh, rather Turbo Graphics is going to eat your lunch. I'll take you guys, but I'm going to return everything on December 26th that doesn't sell. Because NEC, you know, they're just so great. They've got this video and they've got this fancy brochure. That's how you decide, you know, what's the, the better product. And so our, our head of sales says, but you'll still carry us, won't you? And they said, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to return you. That's fine. Just carry us. And, you know, the best part about it was on December 26th, it was NEC that got returned. <laughs> um, we We had close to an 80% market share by the end of 1989. Um, and NEC had lost uh, a lot of their uh, retail partners. And so they weren't doing a lot. And so it was, uh, you know, they, they were a, a relatively easy threat to do away with. And then once we got, you know, <clears throat> them out of the way, it was time to go after Nintendo. Well, Sega had some, you know, great kind of strap lines and marketing strategies and a lot of kind of marketing talk as well. I mean, where did blast processing come from and what did it really mean? Well, blast process blast processing was something that was 1992-1993. It was one of our latest things. We were looking for something that we could go after because um, Nintendo was making a lot of uh, headway with with mode 7 processing. Mm-hmm. And we were looking for what could we go and do. And we brought our engineers and our software developers in to go and say, you know, you know, we proved with Sonic that we were, you know, the fastest system and we were able to deliver great graphics. How can we, you know, what really makes that work? So there, there were, you know, well, it's this technical thing here and this technical thing there. It wasn't just like one chip. Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, one thing like Mode 7 was. It was a bunch of things. And in the discussion, um, someone came up with the term blast processing. We were able to describe what we were doing with blast processing. And then did a great TV ad showing this great race car uh, with um, uh, Sonic on the back of it, playing, racing against an old milk truck with a Mario TV strapped (laughs) on the back of it. And it it really helped show the difference between the two. The fact that the Genesis was like an arcade experience always came along across well. Uh, Was that like intentional? Uh, Because especially in the UK, I remember we used to have lots of old computers and getting an arcade-style console was just an amazing thing. Well, when we launched Genesis at the June 1989 Consumer Electronics Show, we had this giant arcade machine. Uh, Imagine an arcade machine uh, 15 feet high. You know, you were seeing the Sega, great Sega arcade games being played on it, and with the soundtrack and... uh, all of a sudden, the arcade machine split in two and opened up, and there was a Sega Genesis system with a TV set. 
showing that we were bringing the arcade heritage home. We also gave out um, arcade tokens with the face of Tommy Lasorda from our Tommy Lasorda baseball game. Uh, and that's one of the rarer Sega souvenirs, 1989. Well, we talked about blast processing. I mean, what's the kind of a conscious effort to make the Genesis appear much more grown up and cooler than Nintendo's offering? Our, our, our plan from day one, you know, when we looked at, at the Nintendo audience, the Nintendo audience was primarily six to 12 year old boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Nintendo acknowledged that's who was, who was playing it. Our goal was to make the uh, 8-bit Nintendo system be like a toy. And, you know, okay, now that you're done with your toys, you know, it's time to, you know, grow up and, and you know, use, you know, this new cool system. And everything that we did was to go and, you know, reiterate the coolness of Nintendo, of Sega, and the uncoolness of Nintendo. And so... You know, and then also introduce, you know, these great sports games, which appeal to uh, college students and young adults. Uh, we get got teenagers in. The arcade version, the people who, the number one players in arcades were teenagers. And by bringing the arcade experience home, we were bringing teenagers into the video game business. You know, and then our marketing, you know, first starting in 1990. And the 16-bit Nintendo still hadn't intro- still hadn't been introduced at the time was to compare ourselves against the 8-bit Nintendo, and we did um, the campaign Genesis does what Nintendo don't, and that became a major point of differentiation between the two, and split people into the 8-bit camps and the 16-bit camps, uh, 8-bit camps and the Genesis 16-bit camps. We continued, Super NES was getting launched uh, and coming out in August, September of 1991. Uh, Being the nice person that I am, I launched it for them, where we did mall tours around the country, where we let people play the 16-bit Super Mario, which we had gotten in Japan, and this hedgehog guy named Sonic. And we let them play them both head-to-head and then vote for which one they preferred. Sonic was winning by 85% plus, and the highest preference for Sonic over Mario was in Nintendo's backyard in Seattle, Washington, five miles from the, the mall was five miles from their headquarters. So once again, we wanted to go and show we were the best and we were the coolest. Then we came up with um, the great ad campaign, Welcome to the Next Level, which really redefined what video game advertising looked like and really helped to go and make Sega by far the coolest system out there. Well, when you were doing this marketing, like, you know, Genesis does what Nintendo don't, I mean, you really went for the jugular there by directly naming Nintendo. Did that ever cause any problems with that upper management? And did you ever find out what Nintendo thought of that? Well, Nintendo, there was no love lost between Sega and Nintendo. You know, if you read console wars, you know, people go console wars. You know, what, what is that? You know, Microsoft versus uh, PlayStation. Well, this was really kind of a war between the two. We didn't like each other. 
and we would do whatever is best. And we felt that it was important at the time to, to go for their jugular because we had something that was superior. You know, our 16-bit system was way superior than their 8-bit system. And then when our 16-bit system came out uh, and theirs came out, um, you know, we had, you know, the fastest video game character around, Sonic, uh, as well as these great sports games and everything else. Uh, And so we wanted to go and show it that we were the cool system that was out there. So Sega, uh, Nintendo did not like our advertising. Um, they especially did not like our advertising where we compared Game Gear, or Game Boy, excuse me, their Game Boy, uh, to a dog. <laughs> um, because dogs are colorblind and therefore they would choose Game Gear as opposed to Game Boy as opposed to the grid color of Game Gear. That Nintendo did not like at all. Sega Japan management did not like our naming names because it was something that just wasn't culturally done in Japan, but it worked in the U.S. And, you know, in 1992, we had a 65% market share. Where did the idea of the Sega Scream come from? The idea from the Sega Scream came from um, the advertising uh, advertising agency could be Berlin and Silverstein. We were looking for a new ad agency. They did a lot of research into things, and they had these wild ads with lots of video cuts between them. And they wanted something that could go and uh, be cool in one of the ads. And so they got this uh, guy who went into a recording studio, and the guy was a friend of one of the ad agency people, and he was really, really sick, but he managed to get into the um, recording studio for about three or four hours, just screamed the word Sega. <laughs> um, and they found the one Sega that they liked, and it became the Sega Scream. I bet he had a silver and, after that. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, he gets royalties. That was the um, uh, part of the Welcome to the Next Level campaign. Well, when Sonic came along, that must have been a real blessing. How did you approach marketing him? First of all, uh, we kept it very quiet. It was kind of on a need-to-know basis within um, Sega all, all over. You know, we said this can go and be our secret weapon against the launch of the Super NES. And so we don't want anybody to go and show this to anyone or even hint that it's coming about so that we can go and just kind of pull it out at the last minute. Sega Japan wanted to go and show it at the Tokyo Game Show. Finally, after a lot of pressure, they were able to go and show the title screen where Sonic comes out through the logo and and swags his finger in the air. So... We wanted to go at the um, introduce Sonic at the Consumer Electronics Show in June of 1991, which was when Super NES was going to go and be uh, introduced. And Nintendo thought that you know once Super NES was introduced, 
Sega would just go away mm-hmm. because now they had a 16-bit system and that was great. But what we did, we went and did something very interesting. Within our booth, we had two giant monitors, one on top of each other, and one was playing Super Mario World from Super NES, and the other was playing this Sonic the Hedgehog. We asked people to choose which one they thought was the best. Uh, We didn't do the voting there. We did the voting later on with consumers, but these were with the buyers and with the press. You know, Sonic was so speedy. Sonic, the the graphics um, were just so superior and so colorful. Um, You know, I remember one member of the press who had just attended the Nintendo press conference where they introduced Super NES. And he comes up to me and without taking a breath says, Super Nintendo has 32,568 colors and you only have 512. What are you going to do about it? And I think I was probably not as fast as he said it. <laughs> I walk him over to the wall where, where we had Sonic and Mario. And I said, which one has 32,000 colors? I said, it's not how many colors you have. It's what you do with them. And he just kind of sculpted away. Um, we had done you know, some secret play tests around the country where we have kids who were heavily Mario lovers. They had to go and say that Nintendo was their favorite game system and Mario was one of their top five games. We asked them to play Super Mario World and then to play Sonic. And they had had not seen any of them because they had never seen the 16-bit system because it was only out in Japan. They had never seen uh, Sonic because that wasn't out. 88% of those people in that playtest, hardcore, diehard Nintendo and and Mario fans, chose Sonic as the game that was there. And so we we decided that that was our you know our leader and to go and do everything that we can to go and compare Sonic and Mario and just to get the world to see what this great video game character was. And you have to remember, in the U.S., we didn't know what hedgehogs were. We didn't have hedgehogs. We had groundhogs. And it's kind of like, what's a hedgehog? What's a blue hedgehog? The answer was the fastest thing in video gaming. Well, one day that will always stick in my memory, November 24th, 1992, I remember the build-up in magazines, TV shows, to... Sonic Tuesday. Now, that was when Sonic the Hedgehog 2 came out, and it was the first time that I really remember hearing about such a big official release date for a video game. Where did that idea come from, and how did that campaign come about? Uh, it, it really came about as something very, very last minute. Madeline uh, Schroeder, who was the product manager on Sonic, and I uh, were working on the marketing plan uh, the, the launch of Sonic 2. Uh, and we had been working on it for about three months, getting co-promotional partners in. And we had to present it to the senior staff at Sega, uh, Tom Kalinske and, and company. Uh, the next morning, we had all of, you know, everything together. We were rehearsing it. There was no PowerPoint at that time. So there were, you know, overhead projectors. So we went through this. It was a fabulous plan. But as I kept looking at it, I'm going, this isn't good enough. It's not big enough. 
and, and you know, Madeline was crazy. It's like it's the biggest video game promotion that's ever been done. And, uh, and I'm going, no, I just don't like it. You know, we, we need to do better. We just kept going back and forth. It's like, you know, are you crazy? What else is there? I don't know where it came from. Uh, out of the blue, I come from, we're, we're going to go and do a street date. We're going to go and all the product will be delivered by air freight to the retailers the day before. We're going to make it a global street date. And was like, okay, that's a plan. And so we went to work and we had to rewrite everything to go and do that, to present you know, the, the following morning. The reason why there hadn't been a street date before was if you shipped product to a retailer, whenever they get it, they put it on sale. Even if they, it said, you know, hold for July 6th. Well, if they got it July 1st, they put it on sale. They put it on sale. The guy down the block's going to put it on sale. And so all of your street date activities uh, went out the window. And so the only way we could get around that was by air freighting the orders directly to each store instead of a warehouse and have them arrive the day before Sonic Tuesday, which cost a lot of money, but was well worth the expense. After I presented that to my fellow members of senior staff, immediately was, yeah, we got to go and do it. And Tom says, I'll call Nick Alexander, who is the head of Sega Europe. Tom um, Shinobu Toya said, I'll call Nakayama-san, who is the head of Sega. By that evening, we had the rest of the world on board. And then we had group meetings to go and say, you know, here's what we're doing. Let's go. Are there good ideas we can share? Is there artwork that we can go and share? But we don't want to go and have one size fits all. We want you to do whatever is right for your market. Then we did a video news release where we had uh, the crowds waiting for Sonic in Japan. We had the hot air balloons and buses that were being done in the UK and in France. Uh, and then finally the launch uh, in the US that we sent all over the world. It just became a, uh, a phenomenon in the video game industry and it's how video games are sold today. Well, we've had Tom Kalinske on the show before and he's often talked about a kind of difficult relationship with Sega Japan. How did you find the relationship between the US and Sega Japan? You know, it, it all depended on what group you uh, were dealing with. I had a very, very good relationship with the product development group. I would be in Japan every uh, month and a half, and I would be sitting down with um, all of the developers looking at the, uh, the games that were in development, from whether it was just on a piece of paper to you know, uh, initial graphics to final gameplay. Um, and so I had a very, very good relationship with them. There were people who, you know, were jealous of our success, we think, who, you know, it was a, a little uh, strange relationship. Uh, and it got a little, you know, uh, more strained as time went on, you know, because it's kind of like you're the child, we're the parent. That's okay. We're, we're providing a lot of money to the company. So it, it was difficult. Well, obviously, around that time, in, as we kind of got towards the mid-90s, CD technology became the big buzzword. And we had the um, Sega slash Mega CD. 
Was that a difficult sell, being such a new technology? You know, there's always early adopters for new technology. You know, it wasn't a huge numbers as, as the numbers of Mega Drives or Genesis systems, but it was still a good proportion uh, ratio to, to hardware sales and kept getting stronger as we got better uh, in titles coming out. But it was very important for Sega because it was learning what really worked on a CD format in gaming. And so we were able to try a lot of different things to learn what were the best types of games that worked, uh, how could we take existing games and change them for CD. So it, it was a kind of very important innovation lab for us. And for developers, it must have been quite a big challenge as well, because I mean, it'll take a lot more resources to make a CD title than it would a cartridge. Definitely, yes. But I, I think that, once again, everyone knew that CD was, was the future, and it was a technology that wasn't going to go away anytime soon. And so, therefore, the developers needed to get on board to start learning and start investing in CD. Sonic CD was a fantastic title. Was that a big system seller? Absolutely. You know, it was the team, um, the Sonic team, you know, was was very involved, as well as um, bringing in the audio resources. Uh, Spencer Nelson did the music for the U.S. version, No Relation. You know, it's kind of like, what can I go and do? What are the capabilities of the system? Um, which is really what the Sonic team did and what Nakasan did, you know, with the original Sonic. How can we go and really max out the capabilities of the system? How can we make Genesis do not just what Nintendo don't, but, you know, do things that uh, hadn't even been documented yet in, in, in terms of the capabilities. They were, they were finding new capabilities. And it was the same type of thing with, with Sonic CD. Well, how do you want a fan of the 32X? I was not a fan of the 32X. I, I, you know, it was in terms of what it was offering and the price that was there. Plus, we were trying to launch Sega CD simultaneously. We were confusing everybody. We were confusing the developers. Okay. What should I do? Should I do Genesis? Should I do Sega CD? Should I do 32X? And we wanted people, you know, to be very focused and to be focused on uh, Sega CD and uh, Genesis because there was still, you know, lots of life there. And then it was $150 peripheral. Uh, okay, so you're spending $100 on Genesis, $150 on 32X. What was Sega CD? $200? Retailers only, consumers only had so much, you know, spending. And quite honestly, we'd rather they spend the money on software than, than go and buy an expensive uh, peripheral. And a peripheral that was something, it was, you know, you'd have to go and there's a learning curve. How do you go and make it, you know, utilize all the capabilities in it? How do you go and control the two uh, microprocessors that were in 32X? And it was, you know, from the first time Tom and I saw it, you know, at, at Sega R&D in Japan, it was just 
it, we didn't feel like it was a product that had a market for it. And you approved right later on. Unfortunately. Mm. And I've, I, I've got one with a, from Toys R Us with a $19 price point sticker on them. I like carrying, covering things like that, except <laughs> when it was my own company. Well, one thing I read about in Console Wars was um, the story of how you didn't like the the initial name for Tails in Sonic 2 when um, he was called Miles Prower. You, you weren't a fan of that and, and had it change. Is that true? Yeah, it's nobody liked the name Miles Prower. It was an interesting pun uh, for Miles Per Hour. It just wasn't a great name. Miles wasn't a, a good name and, you know, a well-known name in the U.S., uh, a beloved name. It didn't speak to what this character was. And we tried and tried and tried and tried to get Naka to agree to change the name to something else. And the name that we had come up with was just a simple name, but simple names are great when they go and they describe the difference. And we called him Tails because he had two tails. So very appropriate name. And Tom Kalinske tried, Shinobu Toyota tried, I tried, Madeline tried, uh, and still no luck. And finally, Tom says, you know, why don't you guys write a backstory for why Tails is called Tails? Make it a last-ditch effort to go and see if that would happen. And so Madeline and I worked on the backstory and how Sonic met this uh, fox and how he got the name Tails. And then Shinobu and I went down to where we had the Sonic 2 team sequestered building about 15 miles away from our main headquarters. We didn't want them to have any interference from anybody at Sega. And I read them my story or our story and Shinobu translated it. By the end of the story, there was actually one person who had a, one of the developers who had a tear in his eye. Nakasan said, you can call him Tails. So his name is Miles Prower, but his nickname is Tails. And if you want to read the full story, the exact story that uh, we read to the Sonic team, pick up a copy of Console Wars. So why did you end up leaving Sega in the end? I, I was, based upon the success of Sonic Tuesday, it being the first global launch, there was the hope that there could be more. And so I was given global marketing responsibility. But it was a job where I was doing a lot of traveling. I was traveling about 80% of the time, flying around the world. But I wasn't, I wasn't being able to go and get the authority to go and, and, and work with them. Um, you know, Sega Japan wanted to do their own thing. And so it was hard to go and, and replicate a success that we were doing for, um, that we did with Sonic 2. I, I just grew frustrated because I want to go and make things happen. And unfortunately, I had been put in a position where I couldn't go and achieve what needed to be done. And it was kind of sad, I mean, you know, for those of us who were big fans of Sega, because it seemed like on the Mega Drive slash Genesis, you did everything right, and it was such a big success. And did you kind of keep an eye on them, and did you kind of see their missteps and slow decline with the Saturn and the Dreamcast after that? And did you ever think about what you would have done differently if you were still there? I, did I think of it? Yes. Did I obsess over it? No. 
Uh, I kept in touch with Sega. I did some consulting work for them, for Tom and Shinobu. You know, the, and when Dreamcast was coming out, you know, Sega was talking to me about, did I want to come back? And I just continued on doing my own thing. Well, what are you doing today? What are you up to these days? You know, I've been running a marketing consulting company for the last 25 years, helping companies launch products, develop products, just do business strategies. Every client's a little bit of different. It's a little uh, different in terms of uh, what I am, what I'm doing for them. Well, Al, there's a couple of guys who grew up playing Sonic and Mega Drive. I mean, it's been an honor talking to you. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you and the guys did back then that gave us, you know, lasting memories for the rest of our lives. Well, well, thank you. It was, we had a fabulous team and it was the best group of people we've ever worked with. And we're still friends to these days. And, you know, it, it was a unique time. So we thank you for being fans of, of everything that we did. And, you know, the, the whole current retro retro gaming craze if you want to go and call it that it's bringing us a lot of joy to go and see that people still are talking about what we did and still want to play the games that we introduced to the world you know once again if you want the the full story of on both the nintendo side and the sega side you know pick up a copy of blake harrison's uh, console wars it, it really is a, a he spoke with close to 300 people in the industry back then to go and get a really great uh, synopsis and tells a really good story about um, what happened. Well, Al, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Have a good day.